The passage this morning comes from Psalm chapter 46. Psalm 46. And this is God's holy and inherent word. To the choir master of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, a song. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. I know most of us in here are familiar with the, the children's story, The Three Little Pigs. Um, doing research on it, it's, the original story is a lot more gruesome. But anyways, the gist of the story goes like this. Three little pigs leave home, and they go and make a, a life for themselves. And they go and make a home for themselves. And as you may know, the first pig makes a house out of straw. The second pig makes his out of stick. But the third one spends time and energy and effort to make his out of brick. While the first two, they just put something up so that they could be quickly go on to a time of playing. Now, of course, as the story goes, one day a, a wolf, and of course he has to be a, a big, a bad, and a hungry wolf at that, and he comes and stumbles upon these pigs. Now, the first house is blown away, and the first pig scurries away into the second house of sticks. The wolf goes on and blows the second house down, and the two little pigs run to the third pig's house, and they find shelter in the brick home. Now, the moral of the story is supposed to be hard work pays off. But for me, when I see that story, I, I think of a different moral of a story, of that story, and that is a brick home is stronger than a home made out of straw and sticks. Now, you may look at me and say, well, duh, of course it is. That's too simple of a message from that story. And yet the funny thing is, as obvious as my moral of that story may be, so often we in our lives confess with our lips and trust and, 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 and say that God is a strong God and he is able and he is a sure foundation in times of trouble. And yet, it should also be obvious to us that in times of trouble, we should find shelter and refuge in him. 
and not in other things. And yet so often in our lives, that's exactly what we do. Our psalm this morning shows us that when we face our troubles, we are able to face them without fear by putting our confidence in an almighty God who is with us. Putting our confidence in an almighty God who is with us. And we'll see this by looking at three different points or three different facets of our troubles. Now, I thought it'd be easy to, to, to remember, so we have three R's. First, we'll look at the reality of our troubles. And that is, what are our troubles and why do we face them? The reality of our troubles. The second R is, what is the refuge in the midst of our troubles? And here, what we'll see in the psalm is why God, and we'll look at who God is, and we'll look at why God is a sure refuge in times of trouble. And then we'll end our time together by looking at what the psalm has us, how we should respond to our troubles. In light of knowing what God is or who God is, what is the proper response? But before we go into that, why don't we go before the Lord once again and ask for his help. Father, you are light, and in your light we are able to see, not because of what and who we are, not because of any accolades or any strength that we may have. Father, even the smartest and strongest person remains blind unless you shine your light so that we may see your word, and not merely just the letters and the words in it, but to be able to see the reality of our troubles and the reality of who you are, and to know that we can put our trust and confidence in you. So even now, as you use me as your instrument, as your instrument to bring your holy word to your people, I pray, Lord, that we may have a better sense and conviction of our sins, and also that we may find comfort and rest in our Lord Jesus Christ, and in whose name we pray. Amen. So first point is the reality of our troubles. Here what we see, or the psalmist does, is that he paints two different scenes for us so that we understand our troubles. And the reality of our troubles in these two scenes is found in the first two, or, uh, verses 2 to 3 and also in verses 4 to 6. So why don't we look at the first scene in verses 2 to 3. Now, upon first initial reading of this scene, it may sound like an earthquake that the psalmist is describing. Right? The earth is crumbling, waters are foaming. But at first, what may seem to be an earthquake, upon further looking at the passage, we know that this can't be an earthquake. I know there's not a lot of earthquakes that happen here. And for that matter, I know, at least in this area, there aren't a lot of mountains. But we know that there aren't a lot of natural disasters where mountains are being thrown into the air and into the sea. I know last week there were a couple thunderstorms where parts of trees were being thrown around and maybe some trees, maybe not thrown around, but toppled over homes and in driveways and in streets. And, and during those storms, we can be frightened. Now, it's one thing to be frightened of those storms. It's another thing if we saw an actual mature tree be flung across the sky. Now, take that further. What happens if you see a mountain be thrown into the sky and into the sea. The idea is 
that our troubles at times sometimes may feel as if the very ground underneath us is coming apart. We even use this in our own English language. When we face different troubles or crises, we say words like, my world's coming undone. The world is flipped upside down. And often even to our children, and granted, not to belittle belittle their troubles, we as parents will tell them, it's not the end of the world. However, there are certain troubles that we do face. We as a people of God, but also as individuals, where the troubles that we face actually feel as if the world is coming apart. It may be when we hear of a diagnosis of a disease, of cancer, of a lost one, even if it's a lost one of a child. And I don't know much about this church, but I'll go on a limb to say that if you haven't already experienced these sort of troubles, you will one day. In this life, we will face troubles. And he uses this poetic language in the first scene to show us that when we are faced with troubles and the world comes apart, often we are left feeling lost in despair and not knowing what to do. That is the reality of our trouble. The second scene paints a different picture of the reality of our trouble. And it's a different scene altogether. And if we look at this scene, first we see a city. And it's a serene city that is described with peace. It actually says it has gladness because there is a river that flows through it. And if we, if we know, understand Hebrew poetry well, it says that it's the river that makes the city glad but then later on, it actually describes what and who that city or river actually is. And that river is God himself. It says, there is a river whose streams, in verse 4, of, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. But as we see that description of the scene of the city on the inside, what we see on the outside is a different scene altogether where there are multitudes of people pressed up against the wall in opposition to the king of that city, to God himself, and to his people. Where there is peace on the inside, on the outside we see a scene of chaos. People are raging. The kingdoms are tottering. And there are times where our troubles don't only come from the brokenness of this world, but sometimes, and a lot of times, especially today, we see that our troubles come from the enemies of God. Now, what's interesting to see is this. In the, in the English, we don't see it quite clearly, but in the Hebrew, there are two words being used that are actually descriptive of both what's happening in the first scene and here in the second scene. The word here in, in verse 2 where it says, the mountain, though the mountains be moved, that word moved is actually the same word being used when it says that the nations totter. Moved and totter are actually the same word. And not only that, the second word where it says in verse 3, though its waters roar, though the waters roar, roar 
And the word here that we see in the second scene, where it says that the people's the people rage or the nations rage, rage and war are the same. The psalmist is trying to bring a common focus or a common attribute of all of our troubles, whether it comes from a broken world or from the enemies of God, and at the end of the day, it's the same. It's the same in this sense. That word move actually is better translated as totter. And in other words, it's mountains are moving and kingdoms are moving because they stand on something that is not stable. It is referring to an instability. Chaos comes because it stands on something unstable. What does that mean for us? This is what it means about our troubles. The reality of our troubles come because this world is not right. This is not the world that God had created for us in Genesis, and this is also not the world that God had intended for us. The reason why we see natural disasters, the reason why we see death and disease, the reason why the enemies of God are in opposition to him, because both things stand on the very thing that it ought not to stand on. What does that mean for us in our 21st century community, in our culture? Every day we see something else. The enemies of God, the people outside the walls, the reason why they are raging and the reason why they are tottering is because they're trying to find something to stand on other than God, and it's futile. Because there is no stability in those things. You see, on the surface, we may see it as gender fluidity, or our own conceived ideas of what gender is. It could be our own human freedom or our own personal freedom, and what we may see is the murdering of innocent, unborn lives. I don't want to diminish those things, but there is a deeper problem underneath that. It's because whether it's this generation or every generation that has come before, every nation, culture, and time period, in their own way, is trying to find and make sense of things that aren't God. And the reason why they fail, the reason why they rage, the reason why they totter, is because the things that they find their trust in is unstable. Troubles come when you stand on something unstable. Now, it's easy for us to stop here and point our fingers to the enemies of God outside the wall and say, yes, I agree, amen, preacher, but how often do we also, in our own way, as people of God, though we should be in the city finding peace, are overcome with chaos and troubles because we put our trust in things that aren't God as well? And sometimes good things. We try to make sense of our lives and find stability in family, in our jobs, how we raise our kids, whether they're homeschooled or whether they're private schooled or public school, whatever it may be. We also are often found, though we should be on the inside, faced with troubles because we ourselves refuse to recognize that God and God alone is the only thing that could keep us stable. He is the only refuge in our trouble. You see, it's an act of pride, a pride where we rely on our own strength, 
But where we see the mountains be moved and the people totter, here we see in verse verse 5, God is in the midst of her and she shall not be moved. See, Martin Luther, the great reformer, though we may recognize him as this, I always see him as some guy who is just with physical stature, with, with a charisma. And in the history books, we, we, we are picturing him as this great man. But what we don't see is that, yes, he is a great man, but he is a great man because of the troubles that he faced. Oftentimes, he ran for his life, being afraid of being captured. And not only that trouble, there were times where his friends were actually captured and they were executed for what they stood for. And Martin Luther, though he was faced with the troubles of his life, he looked to Psalm 46, and he, cre- and he wrote a hymn that we all are very much well aware of, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Because it wasn't that he was facing those troubles and pretending like they didn't exist. He wasn't looking to a God who would pluck him out of his troubles, but rather in the midst of it, he saw that the thing that would keep him secure and safe, and where he would find his refuge is in the mighty fortress of his God. And oftentimes, he would look to his friend, Philip Melanchthon, and whenever they faced trouble, he would often say to Philip and say, come, let us sing the 46th Psalm. You see, Martin Luther recognized who God was. He is our refuge in times of trouble. And there are three things the psalmist wants us to see about our God to convince us or remind us why God is a sure refuge. And the three things the psalmist wants us to see is God's power. Second, he wants us to see God's nearness to us. And lastly, he wants us to see God's faithfulness to us. So first, his power. First, he shows us God's power over nature. Now, if we look back in in verses 2 and 3, what we see is that there is two full verses to describe the devastation and the power of of natural disasters. Two full verses of the undoing of creation. Where, Where in Genesis 1, the account is the earth is being formed. Here, what we see is the earth being dispersed and crumbling. In Genesis chapter 1 in creation, where the waters are being stilled, here we see the waters roaring and foaming. Two full verses showing the power of nature. But there's only one word in verse 6 that shows the power of God over nature. And where it says, he utters his voice and the earth melts. That one word is to show that the very person and the power of his word to create all things also has the power to undo all things. God has power over nature. The second thing he wants, the psalmist wants us to see is that God has power over his enemies. In verses 8 and 9, specifically in 9, what it shows is the scene, which is the aftermath of what happens when people oppose God. 
Verse 9 says, He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow, shatters the spear, and burns the chariots with fire. Those three things, the bow, the spear, and the chariot, are the very representation of the devices that people have confidence in to make war against God. And what happens? God breaks them, He shatters them, and He sets them to fire. You see, God has power over His enemies. And this is exactly what we would expect from God. In fact, when the psalmist used the word or the name here in verse 7 and later again in verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. I always think in the English there is an injustice to this name. I'm like, the Lord of hosts? What it actually means, it's not the person who waits the table for you, right? It's, it's the Lord of heavenly hosts. The Lord Sabbath. The Lord of heavenly hosts is with us. In other parts of the Bible, it shows us what it actually means for the Lord to be of heavenly host. In 2 Kings chapter 6, we see a scene where Elisha is being surrounded in the city of Dothan. And the king of Syria is, is surrounding the city. And Elisha, the prophet Elisha's servant, comes to him and he's terrified. Because he knows that the people inside the city far outnumber the enemies that have come knocking at their door. And Elisha prays to God that God would open up his servant's eyes. And after he does, the servant opens his eyes and he sees in the mountains surrounding them a large army. An army that they would not see with their own eyes. A spiritual army of heavenly angels ready to conquer God's enemies. We also, see this later, uh, we also see this in another part of the Bible, in Isaiah, where there's a story of King Hezekiah. And Hezekiah is going up against a king, King Sennacherib. And Sennacherib has come to Jerusalem with an army of 185,000 people. And to keep the story short, Hezekiah knows he can't defeat Sennacherib. So he prays to God, and the story goes that at night, God sends one angel. God sends one angel of his army, and that one angel defeats 185,000 men. How much more powerful is a God who has the entire army at his disposal? The psalmist turns and also shows us that God is a, we can have confidence in God in times of trouble, not only because he's powerful, but because God is near to us. You see, it is a great encouragement to us that this powerful God is near to us. He opens the psalm by saying he's a present help. And twice he says, the Lord of hosts is with us. You see, the whole city is glad. It is whole, it is at peace because God is in the midst of her. And he is a sure foundation and security. In this sense, God doesn't sit on his heavenly throne and he doesn't send to us a thing that we can find comfort and security in. Yes, God is gracious to give us our jobs. God is gracious to give us our families. God is gracious to give us a church. But he doesn't give it to us 
so that we would find comfort in those things. No, God comes near to us so that he himself may be that security for us in our time of trouble. Now, before I get to the third one, you see, these two attributes of God, as glorious as it may be, as often as we may confess them to be true, it means nothing to us. It actually gives us no security. It actually gives us no comfort. And the reason why is this. Why should a most holy and perfect, powerful God come near to us? Especially when we are a people often finding ourselves associated and finding ourselves characterized by the people outside the city rather than inside the city. You see, these two things can be floating and they can never mean and come and comfort us, especially when we have no right to these benefits. That's why the psalmist turns. That's why the psalmist turns and talks to us about a different attribute of God, and that is his faithfulness to his people. His loving faithfulness is what takes those two attributes and all the other attributes of the holy God and makes it comforting to us because he's faithful to us. How do we see this? We see this in a simple name of God, the God of Jacob. The God of Jacob. How does that give us comfort? How does this show God's faithfulness? If, correct me if I'm wrong. I believe Christ the Redeemer has been or was going through the Genesis series, right? So maybe you have, and even if you, weren't, if you, you know, haven't gotten here to the point of Jacob, I'm sure you know of Jacob enough to know that Jacob is not a good man. He is not a model person. If you wanted to convince someone of Christianity, the, one of the last people that you would point them to is Jacob. He's conniving. He's finding different ways and finding leverage to put himself in a good position. He doesn't do what God tells him to do. And because of his, his mistrust or unfaithfulness to God, we see even in his family that sort, of, that sort of demise flows from him even to his family. So what glory is there to be called a God of Jacob? Let's put it this way. And I'll use this analogy. I'm an, I'm an Eagles fan. I'm from Philadelphia. But for your sakes, we'll do a Chiefs analogy. Who has more glory or stake to be proud Someone who says, I'm the father of Patrick Mahomes. Or the father who says, I'm the father of the backup kicker. Obviously, Patrick Mahomes. Why? Because there's something about Patrick Mahomes that gives meaning and worth and glory to what it means to be the father of Patrick Mahomes. If we use that and try to apply it here, it wouldn't work. The God of heaven, holy, perfect, just, merciful, and good, and all truth is not what you would expect in the name of the God of Jacob. But the glory in this name is not in Jacob. The glory in this name 
is that God is faithful first and that he is a God that keeps to his promises. He is a God who keeps to the promises not only to Abraham, but the same promise that he keeps to Isaac and, yes, even to a guy like Jacob. This name is to show God's faithfulness not because of the people who are unfaithful, but because he is. Secondly, it also shows that not only is he faithful, but he's gracious. We, like Jacob, find comfort and security in other things. And yet because of his grace and because of his mercy and because of his faithfulness, nothing you and I can do can ever separate us from the promises of this most gracious and faithful God. You see, brothers and sisters, we are faced with troubles. And yet the psalmist wants us to see that not only is he a strong God, he is a near God, and ultimately it's because he loves us and is faithful to us. And we see this. We see these three attributes most clearly and most magnificently in our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it's in Christ that we most fully see the power to overcome all of our troubles, and especially in including our biggest trouble of sin and death. In Christ, we also most fully see the nearness of God as God the Creator takes upon Himself flesh and comes near and lives with us. And lastly, in Christ, we most fully see the faithfulness and love of God where though we deserve the very thing that happens here in verse 9, the breaking and the shattering and the burning, and though we deserved it, we see in Christ that it's instead Christ's body that is broken for us and Christ is shattered for our sake and that he undergoes the fiery pains of death for us. You see, though we are faced with trouble, the psalmist wants us to come and behold the works of God in Christ so that in him we can see his power, his nearness, and his faithfulness. So lastly, our response. In light of knowing the reality of our troubles, in light of knowing the reality and the refuge that is our God, what should our response be? And that is where the psalmist turns. And he wants us to see, starting from verse 8. He first says, come and behold the works of the Lord. That's one. Our response should be to come and behold the works of the Lord. And the second of our responses is for us in verse 10, to be still and know that I am God, that he is God. By, ask, by, by requiring or having us come and to have the proper response of coming and seeing the works of God. If you are a believer here today, the way we overcome and we, the way we are able to face our troubles is to be reminded daily of the wonderful works of God that he has done for us in Christ. That is to remind ourselves of the gospel by daily reading of the scriptures, daily praying, and not only that, here in this church family, praying for one another, supporting one another, reminding us of our identity in Christ so that even if we see a fellow brother and sister struggling in troubles, 
that God has gifted us with the church so that we ourselves can be a city that can be glad. And I don't want to presume, but if you aren't a believer or yet have your, uh, put your trust in Christ this morning, come and see the works of God as an invitation. An invitation to look back in your life to see all the things that you've put your trust in during times of trouble and see if that has lasted. And even if it has, in a temporary sense, if you're honest with yourself, you know it doesn't give you full satisfaction. Come and see the works of God as an invitation for you to trust in God. And the second response that the psalmist has of us is to be still. Now, I've seen Psalm 46.10, like many other verses in the Bible, be splattered around on bumper stickers or at homes in various places. And whether or not it's being misused, I don't know. But what it doesn't mean when it says to be still, it's not saying be still and pretend like you're not going through trouble. Or it's not saying be still and pretend that those troubles actually are affecting your life. Or it doesn't mean be still, I'm eventually going to help you out of that situation and you won't face trouble. That's not what this means. What it's saying is to be still in the sense of be silent. Before you want to exert yourself, before you want to find your security in something else, what I want you to do is be silent and know that I am God. I am God and you are not. I give you security. The thing that you're putting your security in, in is not God. Be still and know that I am God. And you see, this is what stillness means, and this is the very peace that Jesus himself gives to us in John chapter 16, verse 33, where he assures us that in this world you will have trouble. But then he goes on to say, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Indeed, Jesus has overcome the world, and he has been exalted over the earth. He has been exalted over the nations. And so in conclusion, brothers and sisters, as we face the troubles of this life, let us be comforted to know that he who did not spare his only son for us will most surely and graciously give us all things to endure our trouble as he is our strength and as he draws near to us and as he continues to protect us with his inseparable and faithful love in this lifetime. And until the day we are with him in that heavenly city, may we put, may we put our trust and find our refuge in him by joining with the psalmist, by often repeating, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you. We are so grateful. We come before you, Lord, as Elder Steve prayed, like filthy rags. We have no business coming in your presence. We have no business to be before you. Father, often we find our trust and comforts in this life, in other things. And yet, praise be to God, in 
the name and the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. You show us your strength, you show us your nearness, and you show us that you are faithful in your love towards your people. Father, we come here convicted of our sin, but we can leave here in confidence knowing that you have received us in the number, that you have called us by your name. We ask that your Holy Spirit also leave here with us, and that not only will he comfort us, but he will strengthen us so that when we face our troubles, we will not try to exert ourselves, but rather, though the, though the earth crumble away and though the waters foam and though the people around us threaten us, help us to be at peace and help us to be glad by putting our trust in our only refuge and strength and our only fortress, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.